International Short Stories, Volume 2, English Stories. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Edward Kirkby. International Short Stories, Volume 2, English Stories. Edited by William Patton. Section 13. The Knightsbridge Mystery by Charles Reed. Part 3. After the trial was over, and the condemned man went back to the prison to await his execution, Bradbury went straight to 13 Farrington Street and inquired for Captain Cowan. "'No such name here,' said the good woman of the house. "'But you keep lodgers?' "'Nay, we keep but one, and he is no captain. He is a city clerk.' "'Well, madam, it is not ideal curiosity, I assure you. But was not the lodger before him Captain Cowan?' laws no it was a parson your rakedly captains wouldn't suit the like of us twas a reverend clerk a grave old man he wasn't very well to do i thinks his cassock was worn but he paid his way keep late hours no not when he was in town but he had a country cure then you have let him in after midnight nay i keep no such hours i let him a pass-key he came in and out from the country when he chose. I would have you to know he was an old man, and a sober man, and an honest man. I'd wager my life on that. And excuse me, sir, but who be you, that you categorize me about my lodgers? I'm an officer, madam. The simple woman turned pale and clasped her hands. An officer, she cried. Alack, what have I done now? Why, nothing, madam, said the wily Bradbury. An officer's business is to protect such as you, not to trouble you, for all the world. There now, I'll tell you where the shoe pinches. This Captain Cowan has just sworn, in a court of justice, that he slept here on the 15th of last October. He never did then. Our good parson had no acquaintances in the town. Not a soul ever visited him. Mother, said a young girl, peeping in, I think he knew somebody of that very name. He did ask me once to post a letter for him, and it was to some man of worship, and the name was Cowan. Yes, Cowan t'was, I'm sure of it. By the same token, he never gave me another letter, and that made me pay the more attention. Jane, you are too curious, said the mother. And I am very much obliged to you, my little maid, said the officer, and also to you, madam. And so he took his leave. One evening, all of a sudden, Captain Cowan ordered a prime horse at the Swan, strapped his valise on before him, and rode out of the yard post-haste. He went without drawing bridle to Clapham, and then looked round him, and, seeing no other horseman near, trotted gently round into the borough, then into the city, and slept at an inn in Holborn. He had bespoke a particular room beforehand, a little room he frequented. He entered it with an air of anxiety but this soon vanished after he had examined the floor carefully. His horse was ordered at five o'clock next morning. He took a glass of strong waters at the door to fortify his stomach, but breakfasted at Uxbridge, and fed his good horse. He dined at Beaconsfield, halted at Tame, and supped with his son at Oxford. Next day paid all the young man's debts, and spent a week with him. His conduct was strange, boisterously gay, and sullenly despondent by turns. 
during the week came an unexpected visitor general sir robert barrington this officer was going out to america to fill an important office he had something in view for young cowan and came to judge quietly of his capacity but he did not say anything at that time for fear of exciting hopes he might possibly disappoint however he was much taken with the young man oxford had polished him his modest reticence until invited to speak recommended him to older men especially as his answers were judicious when invited to give his opinion the tutors also spoke very highly of him you may well love that boy said general barrington to the father god bless you for praising him said the other ah i love him too well soon after the general left cowan changed some gold for notes and took his departure for london having first sent word of his return he meant to start after breakfast and make one day of it but he lingered with his son and did not cross magdalen bridge till one o'clock this time he rode through dorchester benson and henley and as it grew dark resolved to sleep at maidenhead just after hurley bottom at four crossroads three highwaymen spurred on him from right and left your money or your life he whipped a pistol out of his holster and pulled at the nearest head in a moment the pistol misfired the next moment a blow from the butt of a horse pistol dazed him and he was dragged off his horse and his valise emptied in a minute before they had done with him however there was a clatter of hoofs and the robbers sprang to their nags and galloped away for the bare life as a troop of yeomanry rode up the thing was so common the newcomers read the situation at a glance and some of the best mounted gave chase the others attended to captain cowan caught his horse strapped on his valise and took him with them into maidenhead his head aching his heart sickening and raging by turns all his gold gone nothing left but a few one-pound notes that he had sewn into the lining of his coat he reached the swan next day in a state of sullen despair a curse is on me he said my pistol misfire my gold gone he was welcomed warmly he stirred with surprise barbara led the way back to his old room and opened it he started back not there he said with a shudder alack captain we have kept it for you sure you are not afeard no said he doggedly no hope no fear she stirred but said nothing he had hardly got into the room when click a key was turned in the door of communication a traveller there said he then bitterly things are soon forgotten in an inn not by me said barbara solemnly but you know our dame she can't let money go by her tis our best room mostly and nobody would use it that knows the place he is a stranger he is from the wars will have it he is english but talks foreign he is civil enough when he is sober but when he has got a drop he does maunder away to be sure and sing such songs i never how long has he been here asked cowan five days and the mistress hopes that he will stay as many more just to break the spell he can stay or go said cowan i'm in no humour for company i have been robbed girl you rob sir not openly i'm sure openly but by numbers three of them i should soon have sped one but my pistol snapped fire just like his there leave me girl fate is against me and a curse upon me bubbled out of my fortune in the city 
robbed of my gold upon the road to be honest is to be a fool he flung himself on the bed with a groan of anguish and the ready tears ran down soft barbara's cheeks she had tact however in her humble way and did not prattle to a strong man in a moment of wild distress she just turned and cast a lingering glance of pity on him and went to fetch him food and wine she had often seen an unhappy man the better for eating and drinking when she was gone he cursed himself for his weakness in letting her know his misfortunes they would be all over the house soon why that fellow next door must have heard me bawl them out i have lost my head said he and i never needed it more barbara returned with the cold powdered beef and carrots and a bottle of wine she had paid for herself she found him sullen but composed he made her solemnly promise not to mention his losses she consented readily and said you know i can hold my tongue when he had eaten and drunk and felt stronger he resolved to put a question to her how about that poor fellow she looked puzzled for a moment then turned pale and said solemnly tis for this day week i hear twas to be a last week but the king did not respite him for a fortnight ah indeed do you know why no indeed in his place i'd rather have been put out of the way at once for they will surely hang him now in our day the respite is very rare a criminal is hanged or reprieved but at the period of our story men were often respited for short or long periods yet suffered at last one poor wretch was respited for two years yet executed this respite therefore was nothing unusual and cowan though he looked thoughtful had no downright suspicion of anything so serious to himself as really lay beneath the surface of this not unusual occurrence i shall however let the reader know more about it the judge in reporting the case notified to the proper authority that he desired his majesty to know he was not entirely at ease about the verdict there was a lacuna in the evidence against this prisoner he stated the flaw in a very few words but he did not suggest any remedy now the public clamoured for the man's execution that travellers might be safe the king's adviser thought that if the judge had serious doubts it was his business to tell the jury so the order for execution issued three days after this the judge received a letter from bradbury which i give verbatim the king versus cox my lord forgive my writing to you in a case of blood there is no other way daniel cox was not defended counsel went against his wish and would not throw suspicion on any other that made it cox or nobody but there was a man in the inn whose conduct was suspicious he furnished the wine that made the victim sleepy and i must tell you the landlady would not let me see the remnant of the wine she did everything to baffle me and defeat justice he loaded two pistols so that neither could go off he has got a passkey and goes in and out of the swan at all hours he provided counsel for daniel cox that could only be through compunction he swore in court that he slept that night at thirteen farringdon street your lordship will find it in your notes for twas you put the question and methinks heaven inspired you an hour after the trial i was at thirteen farringdon street no cowan and no captain had ever lodged there nor slept there the present lodger 
a city clerk, lodger at date of murder, an old clergyman that said he had a country cure, and got the simple body to trust him with a pass-key, so he came in and out at all hours of the night. This man was no clerk, but, as I believe, the cracksman that did the job at the swan. My lord, there is always two in a job of this sort, the professional man and the confederate. Cowan was the confederate, accused the wine, loaded the pistols, and lent his pass-key to the cracksman. The cracksman opened the door with his tools, unless Cowan had made him duplicate keys. Neither of them intended violence, or they would have used their own weapons. The wine was drugged expressly to make that needless. The cracksman, instead of a black mask, put on a calfskin waistcoat and a bottle nose, and that passed muster for Cox by moonlight. It puzzled Cox by moonlight, and deceived Gardiner by moonlight. For the love of God, get me a respite for the innocent man, and I will undertake to bring the crime home to the cracksman and to his confederate Cowan. Bradbury signed this with his name and quality. The judge was not sorry to see the doubt his own wariness had raised so powerfully confirmed. He sent this missive on to the minister, with the remark that he had received a letter which ought not to have been sent to him, but to those in whose hands the prisoner's fate rested. He thought it his duty, however, to transcribe from his notes the question he had put to Captain Cowan, and his reply that he had slept at 13 Farrington Street on the night of the murder and also the substance of the prisoner's defence, with a remark that, as stated by that uneducated person, it had appeared ridiculous, but after studying this Bow Street officer's statement, and assuming them to be in the main correct, it did not appear ridiculous, but only remarkable, and it reconciled all the undisputed facts, whereas that Cox was the murderer was, and ever must remain, irreconcilable with the position of the knife and the track of the blood. Bradbury's letter and the above comment found their way to the king, and he granted what was asked, a respite. Bradbury and his fellows went to work to find the old clergyman, alias Cracksman, but he was melted away without a trace, and they got no other clue. But during Cowan's absence they got a traveller, i.e. a disguised agent, into the inn, and found relics of wax in the keyholes of Cowan's outer door, and of the door of communication. Bradbury sent this information in two letters, one to the judge and one to the minister. But this did not advance him much. He had long been sure that Cowan was in it. It was the professional hand, the actual robber, and the murderer he wanted. The days succeeded one another, nothing was done. He lamented too late. He had not applied for a reprieved or even a pardon. He deplored his own presumption in assuming that he could unravel such a mystery entirely. His busy brain schemed night and day. He lost his sleep and even his appetite. At last, in sheer despair, he proposed to himself a new solution, and acted upon it in the dark and with consummate subtlety. For he said to himself, I am in deeper water than I thought, Lord, how they skim a case at the old bailey. They took a pond for a puddle, and go to fathom it with a forefinger. Captain Cowan sank into a settled gloom, but he no longer courted solitude. It gave him the horrors. He preferred to be in company, though he no longer shone in it. He made acquaintance with his neighbour, and rather liked him. 
the man had been in the commissariat department and seemed half surprised at the honour a captain did him in conversing with him but he was well versed in all the incidents of the late wars and cowan was glad to go with him into the past for the present was dead and the future horrible this mr cutler was so deferential when sober was inclined to be more familiar when in his cups and that generally ended in his singing and talking to himself in his own room in the absurdest way he never went out without a black leather case strapped across his back like a dispatch box when joked and asked as to the content he used to say papers papers curtly one evening being rather the worse for liquor he dropped it and there was a metallic sound this was immediately commented on by the wags of the company that fell heavy for paper said one there was a ring said another come unload thy pack comrade and show us thy papers cutler was sobered in a moment and looked scared cowan observed this and quietly left the room he went upstairs to his own room and mounting on the chair he found a thin place in the partition and made an eyelet hole that very night he made use of this with good effect cutler came up to bed singing and whistling but presently threw down something heavy and was silent cowan spied and saw him kneel down draw from his bosom a key suspended round his neck by a ribbon and open the dispatch box there were papers in it but only to deaden the sound of a great many new guineas that glittered in the light of the candle and seemed to fire and fill the receptacle cutler looked furtively round plunged his hand in them took them out by handfuls admired them kissed them and seemed to worship them locked them up again and put the black case under his pillow while they were glaring in the light cowan's eyes flashed with an unholy fire he clutched his hands at them where he stood but they were inaccessible he sat down despondent and cursed the injustice of fate bubbled out of money in the city robbed on the road but when another had money it was safe he left his keys in the locks of the doors and his gold never quitted him not long after this discovery he got a letter from his son telling him that the college bills for battles or commons had come in and he was unable to pay it he begged his father to disperse it or he should lose credit this tormented the unhappy father and the proximity of gold tantalized him so that he bought a file of laudanum and secreted it about his person better die said he and leave my boy to barrington such a legacy from his dead comrade will be sacred and he has the world at his feet he even ordered a bottle of red port and kept it by him to swill the laudanum in and so get drunk and die but when it came to the point he faltered meantime the day drew near for the execution of daniel cox bradbury had undertaken too much his cracksman seemed to the king's advisers as shadowy as the double of daniel cox the evening before that fatal day cowan came to a wild resolution he would go to tyburn at noon which was the hour fixed and would die under that man's gibbet so was this powerful mind unhinged this desperate idea was uppermost in his mind when he went to his bedroom but he rested no he would never play the coward while there was a chance left on the cards while there is life there is hope he seized the bottle uncorked it and tossed off a glass 
it was potent and tingled through his veins and warmed his heart he set the bottle down before him he filled another glass but before he put it to his lips jocund noises were heard coming up the stairs and noisy drunken voices and two boon companions of his neighbor cutler who had a double-bedded room opposite him parted with him for the night he was not drunk enough it seems for he kept demanding t'other bottle his friends however were of a different opinion they bundled him into his room and locked him in from the other side and shortly after burst into their own room and were more garrulous than articulate cutler thus disposed of kept saying and shouting and whining that he must have t'other bottle in short any one at a distance would have thought he was announcing sixteen different propositions so various were the accents of anger grief expostulation deprecation supplication imprecation and whining tenderness in which he declared he must have t'other bottle at last he came bump against the door of communication neighbor said he your worship i mean great man of war well sir let's have t'other bottle Cowan's eyes flashed. He took out his phial of laudanum and emptied about a fifth part of it into the bottle. Cutler whined at the door. Do open the door, your worship, and let's have t'other. <laughs> Why, the key is on your side. A feeble-minded laugh at the discovery, a fumbling with the key, and the door opened, and Cutler stood in the doorway, with his cravat disgracefully loose, and his visage wreathed in foolish smiles. His eyes joggled. He pointed with a mixture of surprise and low cunning at the table. Why, there tis other bottle. Let's have em. Nay, said Cowan. I drain no bottles at this time. One glass suffices me. I drink your health. He raised his glass. Cutler grabbed the bottle and said brutally, And I'll drink yours, and shut the door with a slam, but was too intent on his prize to lock it. Cowan sat and listened. He heard the wine gurgle and the drunkard draw a long breath of delight then there was a pause then a snatch of song rather melodious and more articulate than mr cutler's recent attempts at discourse then another gurgle and another loud ah then a vocal attempt which broke down by degrees then a snore then a somnolent remark all right then a staggering on to his feet then a swaying to and fro and a subsiding against the door then by and by a little reel at the bed and a fall flat on the floor then stertorous breathing cowan sat at the keyhole some time then took off his boots and softly mounted his chair and applied his eye to the peephole cutler was lying on his stomach between the table and the bed cowan came to the door on tiptoe and turned the handle gently the door yielded he lost nerve for the first time in his life what horrible shame should the man come to his senses and see him he stepped back into his own room ripped up his portmanteau and took out from between the leather and the lining a disguise and a mask he put them on then he took his loaded cane for he thought to himself no more stabbing in that room and he crept through the door like a cat the man lay breathing stertorously and his lips blowing out at every exhalation like lifeless lips urged by a strong wind so that cowan began to fear not that he might wake but that he might die it flashed across him he should have to leave england 
What he came to do seemed now wonderfully easy. He took the key by its ribbon, carefully off the sleeper's neck, unlocked the dispatch-box, took off his hat and put the gold into it, locked the dispatch-box, replaced the key, took up his hatful of money, and retired slowly on tiptoe as he came. He had but deposited his stick and the booty on the bed, when the sham drunkard pinned him from behind and uttered a shrill whistle. With a fierce snarl, Cowan whirled his captor round like a feather, and dashed with him against the post of his own door, stunning the man so that he relaxed his hold, and Cowan whirled him round again, and kicked him in the stomach so fairly that he was doubled up out of the way, and contributed nothing more to the struggle except his last meal. At this very moment two Bow Street runners rushed madly upon Cowan through the door of communication. He met one in full career with a blow so tremendous that it sounded through the house, and drove him all across the room against the window, where he fell senseless. The other he struck rather short, and though the blood spurted and the man staggered, he was on him again in a moment, and pinned him. Cowan, a master of pugilism, got his head under his left shoulder, and pummeled him cruelly, but the fellow managed to hold on, till a powerful foot kicked in the door at a blow, and Bradbury himself sprang on Captain Cowan with all the fury of a tiger. He seized him by the throat from behind, and throttled him, and set his knee to his back. The other, though mauled and bleeding, whipped out a short rope, and pinioned him in a turn of the hand. Then all stood panting, but the disabled men, and once more the passage and the room were filled with pale faces and panting bosoms. Lights flashed on the scene, and instantly loud screams from the landlady and her maids, and as they screamed they pointed with trembling fingers. And well they might. There, caught red-handed in an act of robbery and violence, a few steps from the place of the mysterious murder, stood the stately figure of Captain Cowan, and the mottled face and bottled nose of Daniel Cox, condemned to die in just twelve hours' time. End of section 13 Recording by Edward Kirkby, Warwick, England